I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 11th, 2012. Coming up, we'll talk with Dr. Robert Ahrens about what's new and interesting at our local aerospace company, Ball Aerospace. Smashing asteroids and trashy bits in space and maybe the challenges of having a decent conversation about the moon or Mars. We'll also get a quick word on Boulder's Messiah sing-along, which Bob founded 30 years ago. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Epigenetics, how temporary switches regulate gene expression, appears to be a critical and overlooked factor contributing to the long-standing puzzle of why homosexuality occurs. According to a new study led by Catherine Crawley from the National Institute of Mathematical and Biological Synthesis, many temporary gene expression switches, called epimarks, normally do not pass between generations and are thus erased. But her models indicate that some sex-specific epimarks are not always erased, and some of these can favor homosexuality when they are transmitted from father to daughter or mother to son. Homosexuality is a trait that one might think would not persist in the context of Darwinian selection evolution, yet it is common for men and women in most cultures. Many studies have shown that homosexuality runs in families, leading most researchers to suspect that sexual preference is, in fact, hardwired into our DNA. However, no major gene for homosexuality has been found, despite many studies searching for a genetic connection. In the current study, researchers focus not on a specific gene, but instead on how environmental factors can influence what kind of epimarks develop and can persist, and how these in turn may influence which genes turn on to guide biological development. Crawley's study is being published online today in the Quarterly Review of Biology. In a trio of papers published in the journal Science, researchers have presented the most detailed characterization of the moon's surface topography and gravitational field. The GRAIL mission consists of two washing machine-sized satellites orbiting the moon. As they orbit, the distance between them fluctuates. Those fluctuations are related to changes in the gravitational field created by surface topography and material density below the surface. The first science paper focuses on the moon's overall gravity map. The data reveal previously unseen tectonic plates, volcanoes, and craters. Material just below the lunar surface is almost completely pulverized, indicating that the moon was subject to more collisions than previously thought. In the second paper, researchers show that the upper crust is much thinner, more porous, and less dense than previously thought. The third paper then shows that the lunar crust contains many fractures that are filled with cooled magma from the interior. Overall, the results tell a story of an initially hot object rapidly expanding while cooling. All the while, it was fracturing and taking heavy collisions. The moon got more attention this week when a private company announced plans to fly people to the moon again by the year 2020. The company is called Golden Spike, in reference to the final connection of the U.S. Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, and it's headed by Boulder's Alan Stern, a planetary scientist and former head of NASA's Science Mission Directorate. 
to make it happen so quickly and to keep costs down. The company will partner with other private companies developing rockets and capsules, but many other details, such as landers, spacesuits, ground systems, and mission operations, would still need to be developed. Still, they initially estimate the cost of a two-person round trip will be about $1.5 billion. So if you want to ride, start saving up that pocket change. And if that isn't enough to keep you looking forward to the year 2020, NASA announced plans to build a second Mars rover based on the design of the rover Curiosity that is current that currently landed and is driving around on the Red Planet and launch that new mission by the year 2020. According to John Grunsfeld, the current Associate Administrator of Science at NASA, the similarity to Curiosity's basic design should allow the agency to save significant amounts of money on development, bringing its estimated cost down to, you guessed it, about $1.5 billion. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Today, we welcome Dr. Robert Ahrens. Bob is a capture manager in new business for civil and operational space at Ball Aerospace. And I should mention, too, that Bob and I have worked together on a project to find asteroids that might someday pose a threat to the Earth. Hopefully, none of those asteroids has my name on it. Um, Bob uh, got his start in electronics in the Air Force, uh, and in June of 1972, he applied for a job at a local company as an electronics uh, technician, and he's been there ever since. Now, getting back to that asteroid with my name on it, uh, Bob, is there any chance I might get beamed on the head by one in about a week and a half? Not in a week and a half, but in a century and a half, there's a good chance, yes. Okay, well... What what are you guys up to at Ball in this area? What's new and exciting in the world of keeping the sky safe from falling stuff? Uh, well, two things. Um, for the last six or seven years on a project that you and I shared some time with uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Ball has created what we call a system architecture design for an infrared mission, which I believe you guys have already talked about on previous uh, versions of this show, to simply go f- complete the catalog of uh, what's out there. There's a... F- perhaps between a half a million and a million of these Earth-approaching, we call them near-Earth objects or sometimes near-Earth asteroids, Um, the small ones that are the size of something that would fit inside the CU football stadium are by definition uh, small, they're therefore dim, they're therefore hard to see, and uh, um, so we bald advised a, a mission architecture that would go s- specifically designed to find the small small ones. So the idea would be to complete the catalog. And then in computers at NASA or somewhere else, uh, you would crunch the orbits of all these things, and then you would sift them out. And most of them are no threat at all. But if there was a one that was a problem, uh, you would identify it. You would figure out its orbital elements, as it's called. You would do some characterization from the ground and from certainly space-based assets that would have to be designed. Um, but once you had ascertained that it was, in fact, coming and was, in fact, trouble, um, then it's one of the nice things about, if I can say such a thing about a such a hideous object, is that uh, a near-Earth objects are the only thing that I know of about which human beings can do anything. And instead of just taking the, the hit, literally, um, 
with enough lead time, you could go out there and by a number of means, you could deflect its orbit a little bit. And so the joke is, is the people such as you and I who worked on it, our day job was to save the planet. But uh, it's a few years out and it would take a while to get, first of all, find it. And then second of all, to deflect it. Now, does, do your business cards say planetary savior? No. <laughs> but my kids joke about it a little bit, right? <laughs> well, and your grandkids will be grateful that yeah, you're the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when that happens, one of right. the many planetary right. saviors. And then the other thing you said, stuff that falls down. Occasionally, things re-enter. Man-made objects that are put in orbit around the Earth uh, re-enter. NORAD down here in Colorado Springs, by radar now, is currently tracking something like about forty thousand objects, some of which are smaller than a beer can, but some of which are the size of a you know a moving van. Uh, they're very big and. There's a lot of stuff up there now, 40,000 is an appreciable number, and occasionally things hit each other, and then, you know, two things become a couple of hundred things, and it's uncontrolled debris. And so now one of the questions is, is can you go get it? And the answer is, yeah, there's lots of technologies now that would go f track, find, acquire, and then deorbit in a controlled fashion, um, what's called orbital debris. So I've been working a little bit on that, too. Um, and the curious thing about that is, is the technologies, I mean, this stuff is small, medium, and large. The universe tends to bend into, naturally, you know, sort of sifts into small things, medium things, and big things. And uh, so for small, medium, and large, there's various technologies, and you could go do it. The, um, the question now are the policy issues. Who would fund it? Um, would some company, like, some country like China be nervous if the Americans developed a technology for removing things that could be a, a policy threat from some viewpoints? And so now there's a lot of discussions about the, the politics, not the physics, but the politics. And uh, that's beyond what I do. I mean, I just engineer missions. I don't figure out international relationships. Well, you know, getting back to the asteroid mission, the big mm -hmm. things, the really big things that mm -hmm. might fall on one's head. Mm -hmm. And uh, ruin a whole lot of days. Mm -hmm. um, where do you put a spacecraft like that? And, and you'll generally tell us. I mean, we have heard about this before, but mm -hmm. I'm sure we can hear about some new insights about that. Where where would you put a spacecraft? Trailing the Earth uh, no. in the Venus orbit, or about where? No, you would put it. Well, well, I have to be very careful here because different words mean same things to different people. Uh, the best place to find these Earth approaching asteroids is from a. Uh, uh, an observatory that would orbit the sun, uh, but it does so inside the orbit of the Earth. And a convenient place is at an orbital distance that's about the same distance from the sun as Venus orbits the sun. So we say a Venus-like, but we're not tied to Venus. We're not synchronous with Venus. We don't go to Venus. Uh, it's just an orbital distance. In techno-speak, we would call it seven-tenths of an AU. But I don't want to translate that into English at this time. Well, and you're looking away from the sun, and so the asteroids <clears throat> yeah. are lit up. Yeah, by the right. Sun. You're in and the end. Yeah, right. You go down there, and then you put your back to the sun, and you look in what's called the, in our jargon, anti-sun hemisphere, the night sky, and you just look away from the sun for the years it takes to complete the mission. I mean, with the best algorithms, how many times do you have to spot this asteroid before you can get a pretty good handle on, you know, uh, where it's at, where it's going? Um. The short answer is is you need, you need a, it takes it takes two points to determine a line. Um, you would need three or four observations over a period of a couple of months to be able to close the uh, the orbit, as they say. Um, fortunately, uh, near Earth objects uh, when they come into the sun and are therefore bright enough to be seen by this observatory are in what we call our field of regard. There, you can detect them uh, for a couple of months, so you can track them for two, three, four, five months, something like that, and then you can figure out where it'll be in a hundred years.
and and also these can be the really threatening ones can be passed to ground based observatories and yeah. tracked more carefully yeah. over long periods yeah. of time. Once you know where it is, you can take a very high performance instrument with a very small field of view, and you can point it. You could take something like the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, and once you know where it is, then Keck can see it. The trouble is, is the field of view of Keck is so small; it's like looking through a soda straw, and you have a whole sky to look at, and it's a lot of room. Well, now. So Ball would build the spacecraft, the payloads, or do it in collaboration with other organizations. Mm-hmm. So what part of it would Ball be involved in? Well, this mission now has a name. It's been um, the it's been um, it's drawn the interest. It's funny you mentioned earlier the uh, Alan Stern and the Golden Spike. About a year and a half ago, a, a group of uh, scientists um, got interested in solving the mission. NASA, of course, has a budget that's over oversubscribed and underfunded. And so the question is, Is could we raise money for a, a, a commercial application or a commercial mission? To, I mean, uh, not commercial in the sense of returns a, a, a profit, but is funded privately. There's the word I'm looking for. So the mission is now called Sentinel, um, and it's led by a group called B612, which is headed up now by a man named uh, Dr. Ed Liu, a former astronaut. And... Um, um, the contract that B612 would have would be with Ball, and it would be for the spacecraft, the focal plane, the telescope, the entire observatory, everything that would go. And so that's an exi- exciting possibility oh, in yeah. the Ball in the Ball a suite of things it's looking yeah. out. Now, you know, uh, there's a little bit of smaller space junk out there. Yeah. I don't asteroids aren't junky, but yeah. there is, as you say, all this stuff hovering around mm-hmm. our heads. Now, the threat really isn't to us on Earth so much, is right. it? The threat is to all the other stuff out there that we want to work in outer space. That's very well done. Yeah, you said that very correctly. Yeah, I mean, the biggest threat, of course, is to the International Space Station because there's people in it and it's a large target. Um, So every once in a while, they simply have to literally turn on rocket engines and move the station around to get it out of the way of some kind of thing. So the people in the station are the big objects to protect. But then there's things like GPS satellites, satellites. communication satellites, things in geostationary like channel, you know, television, those kinds of things. Those spacecraft are under threat, too. And, of course, the military has all kinds of assets that they worry about. Why can't each spacecraft just protect itself? Uh, Well, first you have to have the ability to know it's coming, and then you have to have the rockets and the fuel and the smarts to get out of the way. So the one way to do it would be to get out of the way. These things are moving at 7 to 10 miles a second, so there's an enormous amount of kinetic energy. You couldn't possibly put enough padding. Like, you can't wrap it in mattresses and and take a hit. You know, it it wouldn't work. So it's um, the energy, the physics. The only option is, is to get out of the way or get the stuff out of the orbit. So what are the range of kinds of technologies? You've told me before that technology isn't the issue here. I think you just mentioned that. So what are the most promising technologies? Well, I go back to one of my earlier comments. Uh, The the debris is small, medium, and large. Uh, So for small things that are in very low Earth orbit, um, a way to do it would be to just anything that increases what's called the drag. So you could fly by and um, perhaps release a canister of gas that puts a temporary cloud of stuff and it just creates uh, aerodynamic drag and there's a way to do it this would be for small things for great big things um most of the targets are on first of all they were not designed to be connected to once they were launched so they don't have any cooperative features on them they don't have latches to grab onto they don't have um targets painted on them to help you approach it Many of them have been defunct for generations now or, you know, 10 or 15 years. Uh, Sunlight and other things cause them to spin. 
So they're uncooperative, they're spinning, they're complicated shapes, and so you have to go up and um, find it. Then you would have to somehow attach to it, uh, stop the spinning, and then once it was done spinning, then you still have the problem of grabbing it. And then, But once you've grabbed it, once you're connected to it, then it's just rocket science. You just literally orient it in the right direction and turn on an engine and burn it down. You just bring it down. Well, what's the cost of doing something like that, given all these objects? I oh. mean... It's a f- uh, that's the problem. Um, to go get something big like a defunct um, NASA um, science spacecraft would probably be, by the time you get a launch vehicle and ground operations, it would be tens of millions, maybe 50, 80, 100 million per launch, uh, which is prohibitive times 40,000 objects. So then what you have to do is you have to build a system that is um, can bring a, a, a target down to a, an appropriate altitude, release it, and then the deorbiting vehicle still has enough smarts and fuel to go back up and grab the next one and the next one and the next one. So you need it. It's an economy of scale would be. So hundreds of millions. Reuse. Total. But you would bring down, you know, four, five, six, maybe ten objects for that. So the per mission is 50 million or something like that. And some you're going to ignore just because they're not in orbits that are too threatening at this time or they're going to deorbit soon or whatever. right. You'd have to selectively do this. Right. Well, those are great and interesting things uh, that Ball's working on. I guess another area of application is um, is laser communications. You mm-hmm. were telling me about HiRISE, our, uh, the mm-hmm. Ball's, Ball's great uh, camera orbiting mm-hmm. around Mars, taking fantastic snapshots, but kind of being the uh, photons are being carried back uh, on the backs of space ants. So yeah. what's going on there? Um, anytime you cr- – I don't mean to sound flip here, but uh, remember space is a very big place, right? And it's a long ways from here to Mars, and uh, all spacecraft are limited by how much power they can uh, produce, um, how much mass they can carry, how big antennas can be, those kinds of things. And so at the distance of Mars, which is roughly twice the distance from the Earth to the Sun, it's about that far again from here to Mars, um, that's a very long ways to send a signal. And um, limitations on the antenna size, limitations on the power and the transmitter, mean that for radio-based communications, you can only get back a few kilobits a second, a few thousand bits a second. If you take an image that's got, you know, hundreds of megabytes of data in the image, it takes a very long time to get the image sent back. So a way to get around that is to get away from the radios, um, and a way to do that is to use laser beams, and now you can put the information on a laser beam, and because the light frequencies are higher than the radio frequencies, your bandwidth goes up, and so now your transmission efficiency goes up. So a way to do this would be to put lasers in orbit around Mars and, uh, re- you know, reception sites somewhere on the Earth or in orbit around the Earth and talk back and forth by on light beams, not radio waves. Well, and even as precisely uh, as collimated, yeah. as skinny as a laser beam is, it's still, as you say, a long, long way. So is pointing one of the big challenges, and yeah. is that an area that Ball has some uh, area of expertise in? Well, you've you've hit it exactly on the minute. Uh, that's right on that you right on spot on. Um, laser beams are highly collimated, and the uh, the trick then is is to point a beam so that you don't hit. Um, the entire surface of the earth but you would hit maybe north america or something like that so pointing and tracking is what we call it is the deal and it turns out that is something that ball uh, excels at uh we came out of the technical foundation for ball came out of the university of colorado in the late 50s december 10th 1956 was actually the day that we were incorporated and uh, which i guess was yesterday right now that i think about it and we were building um 
systems that would point solar uh, observing uh, spectrometers at the surface of the sun from a rocket system that was spinning underneath it. So pointing and tracking has been an, a, a core competency at Ball for decades now, five, five and a half decades. So yeah, it's pointing and tracking. Turning the, generating a light beam, anybody who's got a little laser indicator for a PowerPoint, you can make light. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the pointing, the tracking, and the detection. Well, great. You've been at Ball a long time. Since 1972, things have changed. I heard something about rocket fuel. Oh, yeah. Well, in the old days, we were doing these early things on Arabi rockets, um, which we were launching out of New Mexico. And uh, it was a different era. It was a different culture. These were different people. The World War II had just come and gone. Korea had just been, you know, ended. And people's mindsets about these sorts of things were just everywhere were fantastically different. And so occasionally it wasn't unusual for... Uh, uh, parties to be uh, fueled with a little bit of uh, alcohol and, uh, you know, fruit juice and things How like was that. it made, I mean? Oh, I don't know. They just pour – very unsophisticated, you know? Oh, it wasn't made with all the trappings of the Ball Corporation behind it? No, I mean. no, 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 no. This was very, very, very discreetly done in the very back rooms. You <laughs> so know? you guys didn't have a clean room with a still in it no, or anything no, like no, that? No, 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 Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're, uh, I think many in the community know you because of the Boulder Messiah Chorale mm -hmm. and Orchestra, which you founded 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, give us some, give us a, a, where are you guys at? I mean, is the music as good as ever? Oh, the music is really good. The, um, we've had a few chances to perfect it, you know. I've done um, 87 concerts now, and uh, even I can remember the score, so <laughs> we're ready. And it's next weekend, the week, a week from today, I'll be, uh, it'll be done. I'll be on the on the downside of recovering. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. You know, thank you so much sure. uh, for coming on. Bob Aarons, Dr. Ball Aarons from Ball. We'll have to check in with you occasionally okay. to learn what's new in the world of exploring space. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Jim Pullen. This week's show is produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Beat Antique. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker.